Welcome to episode 368 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature the third installment of three, talking with acclaimed New York City visual artist and memoirist, Peter McGough. A grand conversation going from straight guys to Iceland and all points in between. Peter McGough on this week's episode. We also have an EW essay titled Home and a poem called Lifetime. And all of this, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 368 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
As I sit here and gaze around the room, the essence in me since the womb precludes any semblance of joyousness or gloom. For despite what those masters of material wealth presume, all is not theirs in the end. The crossroads in our crosshairs legitimize the perceived sense of choice in us. That decision between human health and community wealth that compels us to lock our doors and close our hearts also might liberate our minds and free our souls if we finally choose beyond superstition and deep-seated hate planted as we are positioned prostrate on the ground, dissuaded to hear the sounds and taste the beauty and glory of a simpler kind of life. The man and the woman, and those who are neither, and those who are both. All humans, so splendid, that refuse to deny dynamism of breath, to instead chant empty rote, renditions of understanding, this glorious world on earth. Spinning so slowly as the clouds moving past, when one looks up, attests, our existence is not one that should be defined as at its best when we comply to the economic sanctions assigned from one generation to the next, before those coming are born, and despite the wondrous truths of lives lived during time long past, as part of this pristine bombast we all have known as home.
Hello, Peter McGough. Is that you? This is he. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. It's E.W. Conundrum. Who's this? E.W. Conundrum Demure. Hello, Mr. Demure. <laughs> I, I look forward to talking with you. And uh, before we get going, if you don't mind, I'd like, I like to give the listeners some background information on you. Yes. So that was uh, the beginning of my two-hour conversation with Peter McGough. And now we go into the third installment. It was a two-hour-long conversation on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, it was wonderful, It really, for me. I was not in the best of moods. And by the end of those two hours, I was, I was feeling centered. And I was feeling warm and uh, engaged. I hope you do as well after you hear this. Here we go into the last third of our conversation with New York City highly acclaimed visual artist and recently highly acclaimed memoirist for his book, I See the Future and I'm Not Going, Peter McGough. You know, I was, this was the weirdest thing. I was over at a friend's house and they said, I'm sorry, I'm just seeing the last episode of the bachelorette <laughs> and i said you've got to be kidding me and they said just let me do it stop judging me i'm like okay maybe it'll be funny so it's this woman and these two really hunky good-looking guys and she has to pick between one of them they're both beautiful their haircuts are perfect they're dressed in a very beautiful suit you know, one has uh, like a uh, low on with no socks and this and that. You know, they're all gelled up and all gorgeous. And they're straight. I know straight guys. That's not, those guys were styled. And then they're saying these things to this woman. You helped me feel. You gave me everything. I understand. And I'm like, I don't know any straight guys that talk like that. And I don't know any straight guys that look like that and it's unfair to the women and i'm watching this it's the last episode so it's a whole room full of women in the theater with these people on the 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 guy who runs the show and these three people and i'm looking at all the women in the audience they're all done up makeup hair perfect everything's perfect everything's perfect the way they look the shoes, the back, the dress, the coat, the hair, the makeup, the jewelry. You know, they all look great. And I, it's like, this is not real. My brother-in-law, the nicest guy in the world, doesn't look like one of those guys. And he's, my sister, you know, has a great relationship, but he's not saying those things to her. And I think this is, a, this is an illusion. This is a dream that they're making up to find this spot 
that women have been conditioned, and I am not against women, and I'm not judging them. It's like this conditioning of society to say this and that, this and that. Like I was watching this little clip on, on the Internet, and it, they asked Rihanna about a man. She goes, I don't need a man. And then they asked this other woman about her underwear, Scarlett Johansson. She's like, why are you asking me about my underwear? Did you ask him about his underwear? And these women were saying, stop asking me these questions because I'm supposed to be this dumb thing that you want to ask about my underwear or you want to ask about uh, what man are you interested in? And all, most of these women were saying, I don't need a man. I'm happy the way I am. And so I'm watching the show. I know I've really gone off on a tangent here. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> about television. But it's an illusion. It's an illusion. I think I have a boyfriend, the nicest guy. He lives in Queens in his nice apartment. I decorated it for him very simply. He's the nicest nine to fiver. He doesn't say things to me like, I think you have taught me everything about how to treat you. and all. I don't want it. And I know two men are different than a man and a woman. The dynamic is different. But basically, you know, it's a relationship. So I'm just saying is that if that's reality TV, reality TV, I'd rather watch worldwide wrestling or whatever they call it, because at least they're in bikinis. <laughs> 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 I'd rather watch that because that is not reality TV. Put that on reality TV, uh, you know, Emmy Awards or whatever they give for TV. So the world is insane. It's been insane since they learned to build a wheel. It is so crazy, and humans are like a virus on the earth, eating, scratching, digging, eating, building, sexing, this and that. An animal, they have sex when they want to repro uh, reproduce, and they cuddle and run around and all that, and then they go hunting when they're hungry. And we're like, no, I need a more, I need sex every day, I need this, I need a hat, I need this, I need gold shoes, I need that, blah, 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 blah. And then what? You die. No, you are following a hearse. Right, you know? right. You know, they throw it all out, and nobody wants your grandmother's dishes anymore. I do, but nobody else does. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about, that's why being an artist, and I've learned all this from reading. I'm constantly reading, reading, reading. That's what's so incredible. Reading is the most creative thing an individual can do because there's no imagery thrown at you. One has to use their imagination. And that's the greatest tool of an artist or an individual is their imagination, their creativity. You know, being a very shut down, shy child, I lived in scenarios. If this happened, this would be this. Or what if this happened? Or what if I won a million dollars? Or what if I this? I lived in this this uh, world of my mind. But being that crippled of being so shut down emotionally, I became a writer. Something I never thought would happen. And get praised for the way I wrote. You know, I turned them down for a year. The agent, the janklos. I said, no way are you getting me to write. I am not a writer. I'm a reader. I love to read. And he said, yes, but your stories are so funny. And I said, well, that's just party chatter. 
And then I met this other woman and she worked for him and she, I said, okay. And five years later, I've got a book that people are telling me is so well written and I'm thrilled to get it, the accolades. And yet I don't want to get caught up in the accolades because once the artist gets caught up in the accolades, the work suffers. I find. Because of their ego? yeah, because of their ego. And then they're like, ah, it's a Peter. masterpiece. I just painted a circle on a blank canvas. And you're like, oh, gosh, I can see it. You're so great. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that is the thing that art, it's kind of like trying to grasp a cloud or hold a cloud. You're just trying to get it, and you can't. Real art, really, that I think is something that is so beautiful. Like nature. Like you can't freeze a sunset maybe you can take a picture of it and freeze it that way but you can't freeze the whole thing the air the heat the cold whatever you're experiencing and it's magnificent because it goes beyond beyond human comprehension of how the sunset happens with lights and the clouds and the, the you know just yes it's scientifically explainable but it's most humans it's like all they can experience is the joy of the visual and connecting with that. And that's what art is. It's a beautiful sunset. I mean, the moon on the ocean at night, people just swoon, swoon for it. As, as, otherworldly. as we speak, this whole conversation, I'm looking out my window, and I, I live up in the mountains in northeastern Pennsylvania, and it's snowing. And uh, I'm listening to your words, which to me are... Pretty, it's like listening to uh, a sage in a lot of ways, and a, and, a, and a very thoughtful human being watching the snowstorm, uh, and it's very enjoyable. <laughs> I'm having a nice yeah. time. It's beautiful to see because you're in this warm house. Yeah, <laughs> and that and it's beautiful. Or even if you're walking in the snow, I mean, fresh snow. It's so beautiful when it hits the trees and then the sun hits and you don't see any tracks. Oh, yeah. Even if you see tracks, it's just, there's nature. It's un, it's unbearable at, at times in its beauty. It's unbearable. And that's why I think with Australia's fire, people freaked out. A billion animals burnt to death. <laughs> and all those people losing everything. And, you know, if you live through it, and you're in good health, and you've lost everything, that's grieving. And you can still go. Because, yes, you've lost all your material possessions, but you're not going to take that with you. You know how many houses full of furniture we lost? Auctions, uh, storage bills being unpaid, all these loss of things little family pictures, whatever, gone forever. But I'm still here. And getting things, you can find them everywhere. People throw things out. I see in my neighborhood, they throw out these perfectly good couches that maybe have like a, a scratch on it, you know, and they throw it in the garbage instead of giving it away, you know. And I think that all of those things mean nothing. They're beautiful, yes. And it was their house they built, they lived in, their families grew up in, their children inherited or whatever. And that's a real shame. And then all those animals, those those 
koala bears, which are almost extinct. You know, so once all the animals are gone and once the oxygen in the oceans are gone and the oxygen in the air sucks and the water's tainted and polluted and Flint, Michigan is a disaster and fracking, for what? For money. So you're ruining this jewel that we live on, this magnificent that gave us everything, air to breathe, plants to eat, you know, whatever gave us. And then it's just like, you know, no one is going to stop drinking from a plastic iced coffee. And then they drink it, they throw it away. Oh, I need one for the afternoon. They drink it, they throw it away. So 365 times two or whatever, 300 times two. And then you get your salad. I'm eating healthy plastic. I throw it away, but I'm eating healthy. The cars, the planes, the garbage on a plane, all the plastic that comes once meal and they throw it out. And I'm guilty of it, too. I'm flying in planes. I'm driving in cars. This or that. How can it stop? How can it stop? How can you stop this wheel that's rolling down a hill, a boulder? How are you going to stop that? It's not going to stop till it crashes. Then it will stop. And I think I can do my best, you know, like I have this metal cup with a lid and I make, I have them at, at the coffee place, fill it with iced coffee. And I have it the next day. I make it at home or whatever. I try to make my coffee at home because $5 for a coffee. It's crazy. Is yeah. Ridiculous. It's hot water over gray. It's costing zero, 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 zero point three cents. You know, like the tiniest amount to make it. And, you know, the, I'm aware for a long time of the garbage. Like, I remember when we were living on Avenue Scene, it was all wallpapered. This kid left mushrooms there, magic mushrooms. And I was by myself the whole week, and I thought, God, I never tried them. And I took a magic mushroom or two. And so, you know, I'm tripping, and I'm looking at all. It was a, I ended up in an elevator for four hours trapped with seven other people. So I never took it again in, in 35 years. I thought, that's not happening to me again. But when I was looking at the wallpaper, I thought, oh, it's so beautiful, the Victorian furniture, the lace. And then I see this plastic bag, and I'm like, what's that doing in all this beauty? And in it is a bottle of powder, body powder. Like, this is hideous. And in my state, I open the powder, it blows up on me, you know, ridiculous. I get a little funnel, and I put it into a glass bottle. And then I'm looking at this plastic bottle of powder, talcum powder. And I'm like, well, I'll just throw it out on the street to the can. Then my mind just went, where does that can go to? Okay, it goes to the docks. Then where do those docks of all that go? And I just kept going and going until it was like a a mountain, a a state full of garbage. And how are you going to start that? Stop that? One person, I guess, at a time, but it's not fast enough. And so I think whether they find a thing that eats plastic or mushrooms that make styrofoam or whatever it is to feed and take care of the multitudes of soon it'll be 10 billion people on this planet, 10 billion. And it's, I've read that it's only supposed to have 5 billion. And um, I think, well, I've got to enjoy it. Just do my part. Try and be nice. Be nice to other people. Be nice to myself. 
trying. Uh, I know people said, well, oh, aren't you Kumbaya? And I'm like, that's right, mofo. I am Mr. Kumbaya and Mrs. Kumbaya. <laughs> you know, I am, I am a tree-hugging lefty liberal. And I don't see what's so funny about peace-loving understanding. You know, that's what's wonderful. Understanding each other, peaceful and loving. And um, that's what all these religions taught people to do, is to be that. And then you die. And then you fucking die. I don't know if I can say that word on program, but... And then you croak. You kick the bucket. You expire. And so I think... I hope you had a good time. There was a movie on the television about the end of the world. And this woman, I think it is if you look at this thing, you kill yourself. And so she's running with these crowds not to look back. And her friend looks back and gets into a burning car and sets herself on fire. And she runs into this house. And bangs on the door, please let me in with her little girl. She goes in the house, and there's the man, obviously with a queen, with a rifle, and there's another stranger. The house is full of, like, the seven strangers. And she's like, <gasps> and they're all in shock. And while I was watching that movie, I thought, if that was my reality, I would be so fuming mad at myself because I knew this was the end of it, and I didn't enjoy my life. That was the way I thought. I would be livid if it was like I look out the window and I have to get off the phone with you and there's a a burning ball of fire crashing towards Gourmet Garage. You know? <laughs> I would be livid because I didn't enjoy my life more because I cared what people thought about me or I cared what people said about me or this or that. I don't want to care because I know I'm not going to care on my deathbed. And I think every day has to be a deathbed day. It has to be. You're going to expire at midnight. That's when your last breath is going to happen. And I still have to make the donuts, as they say, and I still have to pay the bill. What, what, about, people, what about people in your experience, though, that are actively trying to make your life miserable? How do you handle that? Oh, I got rid of those people. I got rid of them. Anybody who's a bitch, like, you know... I'm just not interested. I'm not interested in psychodrama, reenacting psychodrama from their history or their childhood. And I know I have mine. And I know the type of narcissists I like because they were so interesting. Eh, eh, eh. No. I mean, I'm in the world of artists. Talk about crackpots. Bonkers, me included. Just completely crazed. But for me... That's who I prefer to hang out with. You know, I don't want to hang out with people who are watching TV and talking about a podcast or a, not that podcast are bad, or a TV show or a rerun of some movie or something every single day. And I think that I'm drawn to people who have a different way of the norm. You know, my friend in a 12-step program calls it uh, the normies because I'm one of the normies. I don't have the urge to to get drunk or, or, or high. And so I call the normies people that are, you know, just have this life of 
uh, what they're trained to be. You know, even the rich person who goes to the good school, gets into the prep school, goes into the college, and then they get grandpa into a job on Wall Street. And I'd be like, that, I couldn't think of anything more terrible. You know, it's like the person who goes to the poor school, who goes to the poor high school, the free high school, gets a job at a company and does that. It's the same thing. It's just one has more money and, and better clothes than the other. It's the same life. And both those two opposites, the poor and very rich, are in front of a screen constantly their whole day. Well, the thing that gets me, too, with that sort of situation is once those people have a family and they have a mortgage and they have a responsibility to children, oh. then those power, those powerful people, quote-unquote, they use that against them. That's the miserableness I'm talking about. How do you escape that when you have so many... Which miserableness? The miserableness of, of someone just domin domineering over you, making you feel, oh. you know... Yes. Well, that's the thing. I have this friend who used to work in banks. He was in the PR of banking. And he said these people, and he had to clean up messes with banks, scandals. And he said the people in these banks were so hideous. The one, the one job he had, he had for another bank, but then he moved to another bank. And he said the people were so horrible that he left his job. He said, I want a severance. I'm leaving my job after three years. And they said, can you give us a leaving a statement? And he says, yes. Are you ready? I'm, I'm prepared to give you one right now. I said, all right. He goes, I'd like you to take this down verbatim. The worst three years of my professional life, period. <laughs> he said, that's what you want to write? He goes, correct. Those words, exactly. And he left. Because he said he couldn't stand it. And that was a seven-figure job. You know, mm. big job. And then the money, you know, he lived this life. But he said it just was misery, constantly being screamed at. And he took a lesser paying job, a much, much, like one-fifth the salary, just because, you know, he's good with his money and his investments. But, you know, he just said it's not worth it to be screamed at every day. No. He's doing a bad job by these, these bankers, these billionaires that were just domineering, dominating him. And domineering the whole office, and, and that's so, that's happening all the time with people that aren't as adept at you, as your friend, you know, and, and they're stuck. Well, I've had I've had employees, and um, you know, I have like one that comes and helps me once a week, and another that helps me here and there. I'm basically by myself all the time, except for one week day a week. And I've I've had fourteen in uh, working for me, you know, when I've in my cups. But I, and when I was hiring people, I would say to them, everyone in this studio gets along. There's no inner fighting, and there's no gossiping, and there's no mean-spirited person. So this is the style of this studio, is that we all get along, and I am not, I'm an easy person to work with. I never scream. I never demean the person who works for me. I try and make the environment because they're there every day, let's say. So I don't want them to have this miserable experience coming to my studio because they don't have enough money to sell their, they don't have enough money because they can't sell their own work yet. So if they're going to work for me, I want it to be a friendly environment and I don't want to be some hag that comes in 
because I got pushed on the subway or someone stole my taxi, you know, now they have cars you call. So that I don't want to put that on, on them. But, you know, that's from years of, you know, what they call woo-woo and meditation and all that. You know, I'm, I'm a big meditator. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, who wants to have a crappy job that you hate going to? And I'm lucky enough that when I met McDermott in 1980, we didn't work jobs. I starved. I mean, I was skinny because I would go a day without eating sometimes. You know, really not eating. And we used to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because we heard they have coffee and cake in the back. (laughs) (laughs) We would sneak in when the meeting started, get the coffee and cake on a plate, and then sit there and listen to a, a happy ending story. And that's how we would, you know... Then they threw us out. They caught us, and they said, "You can't do that. You know, this is for for alcoholics." But we understood. But you know, to work for someone who's horrible, and I don't see there's any reason. Yes, it can be stressful in businesses. My best friend is a very wealthy man, and he's super, super kind. I mean, the kindest person. Takes care of people. He bought all of his siblings houses he put their kids to school you know so you don't have to be a complete jerk to be rich oh no no a lot of times it's middle level yeah there's other friends of mine that became rich later in life through business and they're the sweetest you know all these people i'm talking about they're on charity boards of charities that feed the feed people and take care of sick and homeless people you know, they're really, this is a part of their life. They're not just, you know, lip service. And so there is, it's not every rich person's horrible. It's how they, they, they work. Like I know someone who's a billionaire. There's the sweetest person. And they work like a dog. These people, they work like a dog, and, you know, to, to make it, to keep that lifestyle up there. They're working all the time. So, you know, it's uh, it's just how you want to live your life. I've read so many things. I've read so many things. Like someone said, picture the kind of life you want to have, and then you work to make that life happen. And some people, you know, like this kid who used to work for me, his girlfriend's uh, grandfather died, and the parents said, we'll take his house. We own it. You can live there for free in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I was crushed when he left. But I thought, I don't blame you. You can live there in this beautiful countryside and you don't have to worry about paying the rent in Brooklyn. That's thousands of dollars for a, a garbage apartment, you know, and he has and he does works with me over the computer and helps me with projects. But, you know, he's living the kind of life he loves. He walks out the door and he's in nature. And he can go on a a trail hiking, and now he's in Costa Rica in a jungle just because he wants to experience the animals and the the vegetation and flora and fauna. And I think, wow, he has a great life. So he didn't get on, like, you know, the New York Times number one bestseller or the top movie of the year or that I won this fortune. And I think that you still can have a great life and not have made it the way people think you're supposed to make it. You know, you're supposed to make it. Those people that made it, they work like dogs. That's the thing people don't understand. Yeah, you can have it. It's called hard work. 
So you better love what you're doing. I love what I'm doing. Whether I'm poor or rich, I love what I do. And speaking of poor, the one profession an individual can have that does you don't have to be rich is if you're a poet. You said, I put out a, a volume of my poems. No one thinks you're going to be a millionaire. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. But you still get the respect of being an artist because the poetry is so ethereal and so uh, in the vapors of the air, comes out of nothing. So you can still get everything of respect. And you don't have to worry about, oh, he's really a rich poet. Rich and poetry don't seem to go together. Mm-mm. And I know John Giorno, who's a great poet, he just died. He was making paintings of his poems. I mean, he was a great, one of the last of the beats, you know, had an affair with Warhol and Bur- John, Bur- William Burroughs and, you know, all of them. And he didn't have to be rich. But he, he became, uh, you know, he had a younger artist boyfriend who was very successful. But, you know, being a poet, you don't have to be rich. And you can still get respect. And um, you need a great patron or you need a job. But I think that being an artist, I mean, I'm so lucky that I could make a living all those years and still do it and still do it. Even with all the pitfalls, the jealousies, when in the eighties, when these artists were having these shows, my contemporaries of my age group, I was like, how come I'm not having a show there? How come I'm not in that museum? Show? I was so jealous of some people's careers. They're not even around. Nobody knows who they are. And it's only, you know, 30 years ago. And these people were respected. And you think, you know, life happens or they get disillusioned or they're just lost interest. And um, so it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter to uh, what other people have. You know, I could just go on and on and on. You better ask me a question or say goodbye. I looked at it as a stream of consciousness sort of uh, discourse from... Um, an artistic sage, and, I, and that's the way I, I let it go. Because you, you had so much to say, uh, I appreciate you sharing so much time. Oh, I'm thrilled that you're the type of interviewer because it's the interviewer that makes the interview, not the interviewee. It's the questions one is asked. And I had this person ask me these questions, and I thought, really? And then the article wasn't so great. You know, and uh, it's the person who asks the questions. That's why conversations can be mediocre or, or exciting exactly. or thought-provoking. And that's what, you know, we have, we humans have this mind. It's used it. <laughs> and I learned a lot from McDermott because he wouldn't just read a book and then reiterate it to somebody. He would talk about the book and what it meant for him, and what he thought about while he was reading it, or a film, or whatever. You know, most people, they say, oh, I saw the movie. Wasn't that great when the girl walked in, and then the bomb exploded, and this and that? And he would say what the girl means, and what is she representing? So that's what conversation is supposed to be about, is, is growing, you know? Not just saying, 
oh my god did you see you know the water cooler conversations they no. used to have they don't know water cool they just text each other but um you know that's why i love to read and i really love to read good writing i bought a book on stonewall years ago because i wanted to know the history of it and stories and i put it down a third of the way through because i couldn't bear the writing the writing was to me it wasn't keeping me uh it didn't hold my attention to turn the page so much i just thought well maybe that's going to get better and it didn't but there's many uh you know there's many books like you know that make millions of those women who write like those or those men that write those uh what do they call them uh, uh bustier uh, girdle busting or bustier busting books you know they there's a fortune barbara cartland kind of book mm-hmm. you know they make a fortune about these stories that they just change the scenery and it's the same kind of thing you know uh, whatever romance romance novels but um you know i think that It's incredible, incredible to be alive. The gift of life is incredible. That's why I think that people respect these war veterans that walk around on those new legs because to lose part of your body is so tragic. And then you can say, all right, I'm going to have, I want to keep on living. I want to keep on living. And I think that is, What's incredible is that you can make, the individual can make their life anything they want to. It's just the know-how and the fortitude to carry on against aversion and rejection. I think that Eddie Murphy, who's such a genius in that Dolomite movie. Loved it. About that. Not only was it entertaining, that man, Dolomite, the character, he never gave up. He wanted his dream. He wanted to be on stage. He wanted to make a record. He had the record where he's naked on the record covers, the way he wanted it. He wanted to make a movie. And when they said, no one will listen to your record, he made it happen. No one will make a movie of this script. He made it, and then they said no one's going to show it, and then he made it, showed it in his own theater. And that's life. Have a ball, you know. Have a ball. I've, listened, I've done meditation retreats. I've listened to those, oh, those uh, what do they call themselves, those personal advice, the enthusiastic coaches. What do they call them? Tony Robbins. The people yeah, yeah. I just take a little bit from this, and I take a little bit from that. And, you know, it's, it's, I should have been dead. So many, I almost died five times in my life. I was given last rites twice as a child. I was thrown out of a car uh, into a highway and I almost died twice of age. I should have been dead. And I remember I was going, I was invited to Iceland, a country I always wanted to go to. This was around the turn of this last century. And McDermott didn't want to go because he didn't, there wasn't a ship there going there. And he wouldn't fly at the time. <clears throat> and I'm in a taxi going to the airport. I 
spent the money for the ticket. They sent the ticket. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go. I'm going to be by myself. I don't know these people. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I'm going to tell the taxi driver, turn around and take me back home. That's what I'm going to do. And then we get to the part of the highway where we drive through Queens, where there's the cemetery. And I look at this enormous cemetery of dead bodies. And I thought, God, my friends who are dead would love to go to Iceland. And they'd love to be alive. And just like that, my mood changed. I said, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I had the greatest, greatest time flying in a propeller plane over a glacier to get to Akareri up north in the fjord. Mm. I left Iceland. At, at a, I was at a party, and I left the party at 7 a.m. <laughs> and I said, I've got to go. And they're like, where are you going? I said, I've got a plane to catch in two hours. I have to get out of here. <laughs> and I just left for the airport, you know. And that is, that is the synchronistic and euphoric times in one's life where you just let go and go with the ride. You know, you just say, okay, it's all planned out. I'm going to go and see what happens. And I had the greatest time. You know, I'm in a, 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 the, the, the Blue Lagoon, you know, the hot waters. I'm in another one up in Akararia, and it's in January, and it's, the snow is falling on my head, and I'm in this boiling water. You know, it was an experience that I'll never forget. And so that's what life is. Never forget, even in your darkest hour, how what a privilege it is to be alive in good health and your needs met, your basic needs met. Everything else is gravy. Everything else. When you're set up healthy, you got it made. If you're in good health, you got it made. And the world's full of sick and dying people. And if you got it, calm down and enjoy it. You know, that's my message. Excellent. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. And when will this appear? I'd like to advertise it on social media, as they call it. I will uh, email you and let you know. I mean, we talked for quite right. we talked for quite a long time, so I'm going to have to delve in there. This, we might uh, do it in a series of uh, airings, you know. Uh, right. But I'll I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And I I really I enjoy talking with you. Uh, I was a bit melancholy today, and it was very helpful to talk with you. Thank you. I know I should have a soapbox on a corner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sir. Enjoy Take the rest care. of the day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. A pity she does not exist. A shame he's not a fag. The only girl I ever loved was Andrew and Drag. There is no hope of love for me from here on. I go stag. The only girl I'll ever love is Andrew and Drag. Andrew and Drag. Andrew and Drag. Andrew and Drag. Yeah. I don't know why. 
funny to see Andrew and Greg The moment he walked on the stage my tail began to wag Wag like a little winter dog for Andrew and Greg Andrew and Greg Andrew and Greg Andrew and Greg Yeah I've always been a ladies' man and I don't have to brag But I've become a mama's boy for Andrew and Greg I've signed away my trust fund I would even sell the jack Dressing is the only boy I shag. The only boy at anything is Andrew and Greg. I'll never see that girl again. He did it as a gag. I'll pine away forevermore for Andrew and Greg. From this valley, they say you are going. We will miss. Your bright eyes and sweet smile For they say you are taking the sunshine That has brightened our path for a while Come and sit by my side if you love me Do not hasten to be but remember the Red River Valley And the cowboy who loved you so true Won't you think of the valley you're leaving Oh, how lonely, how sad it will be are causing to me as you go to your home by the ocean may you never forget those sweet hours that we spent in the red river valley and the love we exchanged Lifetime. Rolled up white sacks in the corner of a hardwood floor, damp smell of an empty house, once a hearth of togetherness and consortium culled with hope. Life proscribed the seemingly real requisite patterns and substance, now disappeared, but were meant to last a lifetime with flourishing energy that would endure though instead we demurred.
I'm standing still as you put down the keys And say don't call me please While the radio plays I think I need a new Episode 368 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Peter McGough. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you, sir. I'd also like to thank these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, David Bowie, Nick Waterhouse, Bill Frissel, Petra Hayden, Hank Roberts, Luke Bergman, The Magnetic Fields, and of course, Terrence Blanchard and Brantford Marsalis, too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time. Take care.